Thanks for checking out this message from Coastal Community Church. We hope it's helpful and encouraging. Good morning. Welcome to Coastal Community Church. I am uh, Pastor Chris. Man, it doesn't get any better than that, does it, to see uh, a young lady uh, take her next step, uh, her next journey in faith, getting baptized today, buried with Christ in baptism, and raised to walk in the newness of life. So we celebrate with uh, Talon Savage and her friends and her family that are here today. And we'd like to welcome those of you who are watching online, as always. Thanks for joining us. We have a large and growing uh, online community. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but we have like over 500 people regularly every week watching us online. So we uh, appreciate you guys and joining all these beautiful people here today. Uh, Let's just jump right in and get started. We are in this great series right now uh, through the book of Romans. And so if you have your Bibles with you, your Bible app, or you can pull out your outline, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5 today. Uh, We began last week, the first part of Romans chapter 5. We're going to finish it up today. So far in this chapter, the Apostle Paul has been talking about how our salvation comes one way and only one way. Uh, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and through faith in him. Now, the Apostle Paul is obviously one of the greatest teachers who ever lived, and you probably noticed that there's something that he typically does in his writings. And so we've seen this already. He kind of anticipates the reader's questions and go ahead and he goes ahead and answers them. So he, he does that again here. He anticipates a question that you might have, and here it is. How can the actions of just one person affect the whole world? Or maybe we would ask it this way. How is it possible that Jesus dying on the cross outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, how is that possible that it affects those of us who are living today in Charleston, South Carolina in 2022? So in anticipation of that, Paul answers that question and he uses the example of Adam. Now, so far in the book of Romans, Paul has kind of pulled out the big guns. He's referenced, uh, he's used as an illustration David, and uh, we talked about Abraham, and now he uses Adam, probably the biggest gun of all. And so what we have here in the verses that follow is this interesting analogy between Adam and Jesus. Now, in, in, as far as literary terms go, the contrast is based on something called an antithetical analogy. Everybody say that with me. Antithetical analogy. You couldn't even say it, could you? I know. So I know what you're thinking. Speak English, Chris. Uh, What in the world is an antithetical analogy? Well, it is an analogy between two things or two people that are different. Okay? So this analogy is based on differences not similarities, okay? Like cats and dogs. You know, in other words, evil and good, okay, right? Um, you know, winners and losers. And I was going to say Carolina and Clemson, but after the beatdown my team took last night, I know, and I appreciate all the love that I've gotten today about that game, but I can take it, I can take it. But, in fact, we're going to see that the only thing, though, that, that Adam and Jesus have in common is that they committed this one particular act and that act went on to affect all of mankind. But the act itself that they committed was so radically different that from that point on, there really is no similarity whatsoever. They stand in stark contrast to each other. 
Again, it's a contrast. It is a, an antithetical analogy. So, and you see that very clear in verse 18. Listen to this. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ, one act of righteousness, brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Now, a very important change has now occurred in the book of Romans. So up until this point in the letter, Paul has been talking about sins, plural, okay? Referring to our actions. You know, we commit sin, you know, sins. And now all of a sudden, sin turns singular, sin. And so instead of referring to the fruit, our actions, Paul now is talking about the root, the root of our sin. In other words, sin is not just something that we do. It's not just something that a person does. It's something that a person is. It's something that we've been born into. Something that all of us have inherited from Adam. And we talked a little bit about this early on. Paul is basically establishing the fact that we don't become a sinner because we sin. But rather, we sin because we are sinners. Okay? Don't believe me? I think I can prove it. Raise your hand, all of you are parents. All the parents, raise your hands. Okay, we got a lot of parents in the room. How many of you moms and dads had to teach your children how to be selfish? Okay, right? Of course, I mean, you think that's ridiculous, Pastor Chris. How many of you had to teach your children how to disobey, how to lie? Of course not. Just the opposite is true, right? I mean, selfishness comes naturally to a child, right? We have to teach them how to be unselfish. We have to teach them to how to not disobey, not to lie. Again, we don't become a sinner because we sin. We sin because we are a sinner. And it can all be traced back to Adam. I can't tell you how many times, you know, early on with our children. I, man, we got beautiful, precious children. We do. I love them. They're awesome. And sometimes they would just do the stupidest things. And they would disobey. And they would just do something so out of character. And my, my wife would look at me and was like, Chris, you know, why? How is this possible? How, you know, what have we done? How, why, why are they doing that? And I was like, honey, because they're sinners. They are. I mean, it can all be traced back to Adam. This is why. And so Adam is the source of sin's entrance into the world. Look at verse 12. When Adam sinned, listen to this, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone. For everyone, hear that? Everyone's sin. Now, that particular sin is described for us in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. And it's important to note that Paul doesn't say that sin originated with Adam, but that sin entered the world through Adam. In other words, Adam didn't create or manufacture sin. Sin, of course, originated with Satan. But it was through Adam that it was introduced to the world. In other words, Satan manufactured it, but it's as though Adam marketed it, okay? And Paul's point is that all of us, all of mankind has been affected and infected with it. It's had an effect on all of us. And so, back to Genesis 2, God places Adam in the Garden of Eden, and uh, Genesis 2, 16 and 17 tells us that he gave the following command to Adam. This is what he said. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden except 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So Adam is given one simple prohibition by God. But the consequences for disobeying that command were devastating. And you all know the rest of the story, right? Eve is deceived by Satan, you know, the serpent. She eats the fruit, and then she gives some to Adam, and he eats. Now, what's interesting is that according to Genesis, you know, you read the uh, creation story, it appears that sin enters the world through Eve. But here in Romans, Paul never mentions her name. You know, he says over and over again that sin entered the world through one man, Adam. In other words, even though Eve sins first, nowhere in the Bible is she actually blamed for the fall or for its consequences. You know, why? How do you reconcile that? Why does Adam, you know, have to take the rap? Well, I think Paul clarifies it, clarifies it a bit for us in 1 Timothy 2, uh, verse 14. Listen to this. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. And so a lot of theologians believe that the reason she's not charged with the responsibility for introducing sin to the human race is that she was the one that was deceived by the very subtle temptation of the evil one. Now, she still sinned, but she was deceived by Satan. But then Paul says, Adam was not deceived. He just charges into it eyes wide open, you know? I mean, you, know, you say, well, he was deceived by the woman. She's like a serpent. Okay, maybe. I see what you're saying. But basically, God charges him with being the one who introduces sin to the human race. Go back to verse 12. The Greek uh, verb there translated everyone sinned. Okay, everyone sinned. It means, it's referring to a completed action that occurred at a particular point in time. In other words, Adam not only sinned as a man, he sinned as man, okay? So the truth of verse 12 is that Adam sinned, and because of this, all men die. He introduced death into the world. All men die because all men have sinned, all mankind has sinned in Adam. We die spiritually, we die physically because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. You know, physically, think about it. Approximately 60 million people die every year. 60 million people. That's almost two people every second. There was a, um, a funeral director uh, in Charlotte. He used to sign all of his cards, eventually yours. <laughs> eventually yours. I like that. Um, speaking of funeral directors, I heard a story about a woman uh, who won the heart of a millionaire and uh, married him because she, wants, she wanted to be wealthy. Uh, but after a few years, she got bored, she divorced him, and uh, then she turned around and married an actor uh, because she wanted excitement, you know. And, uh, but that didn't turn out so well for her, so she divorced the actor and she married a preacher. And uh, no, I'm not talking about Janet, by the way. Anyway, but um, she married a preacher. But unfortunately, that didn't turn out so well either, and uh, so she divorced the preacher, and uh, finally she marries a funeral director. Uh, when she passed away and was buried, guess what they put on her tombstone? One for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. I thought that was good anyway. Um, 
just a pastor joke. You know, I got, I got tons of them. Anyway, the point is, the point that I'm making is that thanks to Adam and what he did in the garden, the death rate in our country still hovers right around 100%. I mean, he introduced spiritual death, physical death to all of mankind. Now, I know you might, you might be thinking, yeah, but come on, Pastor Chris, wait a second. You know, that's not fair. It's not. You know, I didn't get a vote on that. I wasn't there when Adam sinned. You know, I didn't exist. And yet, you know, you're telling me I've inherited all the consequences of, of sin and guilt. And I'd say you're right. We have. Adam sinned once and he brought death to all. Look at the end of verse 14. Now, Adam is a symbol. And again, here comes this uh, antithetical analogy, this contrast. Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who is yet to come. In other words, Paul is using this truth to say that in a similar way, Jesus died once, and despite all of our many sin, he potentially brings life to all that are found in him. The curse of Adam has its cure in Christ. Aren't you excited about that? Aren't you grateful for that? That Jesus replaced what Adam erased. Write that down. Jesus replaced what Adam erased. And so what Paul does here in the end of Romans 5 is he illustrates that by giving us these four areas of contrast between, that exist between the condemning act of Adam and the redeeming act of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're gonna talk about today. These four contrasts and how they apply to our lives today. So if you're taking notes, number one, let's talk about the contrast of effect, of effect. Look at verse 15. But there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. Now, again, what did Adam's sin affect? I've already talked about it. Paul tells us again here, it brings death. Death to all of mankind. Spiritual death, physical death. In fact, the NIV uh, translates the word sin here as the word trespass. Trespass, that's a pretty good word because it carries with it the idea of deviating from the path. You know, going where you shouldn't go. And so by eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam trespassed on the property that he had been divinely forbidden to go. He departed and went his way, not God's way. Instead of becoming more and more like God, like, like Satan promised, mankind became more unlike his creator. And we're separated from him. So the effect of that one act by Adam has been enormous. And it's had a, you know, a ripple effect on all of mankind throughout all of history. But the heart of Paul's contrast here is that Christ's one act of salvation had an immeasurably greater effect than Adam's one act of damnation. So as devastating to humanity as Adam's transgression was, his trespass, his sin, Paul says, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. 
So the first distinction between the work of Adam and the work of Christ is the difference between life and death, guilt and grace, verse 16. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God even though we are guilty of many sin. Wow, what a contrast. Adam sins once and brings death. Jesus died once and brings life. Now, there's a couple of truths here that you quickly notice in these verses, and I think we need to, we need to reference them. The first one is that God does take sin very, very seriously. He does. You can't, you can't, not, you can't read this and not, not see that, Okay? Now, now, sadly, throughout the Bible and sadly throughout the world around us today, people are constantly trying to minimize sin and its consequences. In fact, Adam's sin, you know, truthfully, was not even what most people today would call sin, right? I mean, at best, people today might look at what Adam did as just a little misdemeanor, right? I mean, after all, all he did was eat a piece of fruit off of a tree. What's the big deal, Pastor Chris? The big deal is that God commanded him not to. That's the big deal. You know, an act that many people today would hardly even think of sin caused the condemnation of the entire human race. Now, who can say that sin isn't serious? It is. Our God is holy. We are not. The Bible is clear. The result of sin is death. Physical death, spiritual death. But that, that right there is what makes the other truth so beautiful and so miraculous. God takes sin seriously. Yes, but even greater even greater than God's hatred of sin, is his love for you. Don't you see that? His love for you is love for the sinner, for you and for me, despite the fact that God hates sin so much that just one sin could damn the entire human race. His loving grace and kindness towards us is so great that he was willing to sacrifice his one and only son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. That's how great his love is. Second contrast, number two. Paul then mentions the contrast in extent, in extent. And what I mean by that is the capacity to produce a desired result, the extent of it. Look at verse 17. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. So as to the extent of Adam's act, Paul tells us that by his sin, death reigned over the whole human race. Now listen, Paul is talking here about more than just the funeral at the end of your life. He's not only talking about physical death. Not, Not only does death come at the end of your life physically, but he's also referring that death reigns throughout our lives before we actually physically die at the end of our fun- you know, at the funeral because of Adam. 
I mean, think about it for a second. You know, truthfully, what is life? What is life? You know, you might say life is love, it's joy, it's excitement, vitality, enrichment, fulfillment. I mean, those things make up life. Well, what is death? Death is the absence of life. In other words, death is emptiness, loneliness, misery, depression, restlessness, disease, discouragement, all of those things. And because of Adam, that's the extent of it. We're not not insulated from any of that. And so while we are yet living now, death still reigns because of Adam's sin. But here's the contrast. Paul is saying that while Adam's sin brought life to an end as we know it, Christ's act of sacrifice and love dethrones death and brings back life. I mean, you you actually see that contrast right there in in the very words of Jesus in John 10.10 where he said this, the thief, okay, the thief, Satan, the evil one, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's death. And then Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In other words, in Christ, believers in Christ, Christians, we get to experience a life right here and now, more abundantly. We get to still have joy and peace and glory and gladness in the midst of all of the death surrounding us. And then when we even physically die, Paul says, that's not the end of you. You get to go on to glory. Paul is using this contrast to help us see how much more you have in Jesus than you ever lost in Adam. What you lost in Adam, you regain in Jesus and so much more. And as great as all this is, it keeps getting better. Look at number three, the contrast in essence in essence, verses 18 and 19. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. We've talked about that. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Paul is saying here that the essence of Adam's one trespass, the essence of his sin, was disobedience. That's the heart of it, isn't it? Disobedience. Whereas the essence of Jesus' one act of righteousness, what was it? Obedience. In other words, when God commanded Adam not to eat of the forbidden fruit. Adam disobeyed God, and it brought death. When God sent Jesus into the world to suffer and die, Jesus obeyed his Father, and it brought life. Now, I want you to notice um, a very subtle, but it's a very important difference all of a sudden being used here in terminology here in Romans 5. So up to this point, the word uh, justified, and we've talked a lot about that in this series, or or righteous, 
it has almost been exclusively used in the positional sense, okay? If you're taking notes, this isn't a blank on your outline, but you might write down the word positional, okay? So justified, made righteous, it's all been used in a positional sense. But now all of a sudden, verse 19, Paul talks about our being made righteous, and it's obviously here as he's talking about something different. It's a, uh, the Greek verb that he's using here. It's different. It's, a, it's more of a, a process. And so this is experiential truth rather than positional truth, okay? Two different things here. And I, I'm, let, me, let me explain. So there's positional truth and experiential truth. And both are important. So Here's how I'm going to explain it to you. When, when you became a believer, when you became a Christian and you placed your faith in Christ, your, your, your trust in Jesus, at the point of your salvation, you are now declared righteous. Positionally, okay? You are now located in Christ. You are outside of Christ before, at war with God. You've been now made right with God, and positionally, you are in Christ, you're, you're at peace with God. You've been made right in God's sight because of your faith, positionally. And then, as you begin to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you begin to you know, be obedient, that, that essence that we've talked about, God begins the process of actually making you righteous, okay, experientially. In other words, you know, you've been made right, declared right positionally, and now, day by day, you are becoming righteous experientially. And, you know, what God already sees you as positionally in Christ. And that process, that beautiful process, is not going to be complete until the day you face God in heaven, in all of his glory, and you've been transformed. You know, so the first process, positionally, the, the theological term for that is justification. You've been justified in Christ, justification. That second process, experientially, is called sanctification. You're being sanctified. You're being made righteous. You know, you're becoming more and more day by day what God already sees you in Christ. Now, both of them are important. But, you know, we live in this world where we kind of, you know, the, the pendulum kind of swings and, and we tend to emphasize one way, one thing, or another. And unfortunately, there are some Christians who want to place all the emphasis over here on positional truth. You know, who you are in Christ, right? You know, positionally, I'm saved, I prayed a prayer, I've been made right, right with God, everything's good. But then they seem to, you know, suffer from a little bit of carelessness when it comes to personal holiness, and, you know, this idea of cooperating with the Holy Spirit and becoming day by day more and more like God sees them. But then on the other hand, there are some believers who place all the emphasis over here on this experiential truth, you know, personal holiness side, and they become a little, you know, legalistic, and they forget that they are they're ultimately right in Christ, and they seem to lack a, a little bit of confident assurance of their salvation. So my question is, who's right? I think both are. You know, it's not either or, it's both and. You know, it's, it's both. It's, it's like sodium and chloride. Those of you who, who did well in uh, chemistry, you know that both of those elements, um, in and of themselves, if ingested alone in enough dose, they, they're fatal, right? Sodium and chloride. But combined, sodium and chloride become what? 
Salt. Man, y'all are dumb. No, I'm just teasing. Anyway, um, salt. I thought somebody would know that. Salt. Sodium chloride. It's right there on the thing. You know, um, I don't know. That's all I know, actually. That's it. Um, but it becomes salt, which salt is, is important for, you know, the enjoyment of life. Well, likewise, justification without sanctification, you know, can poison your soul. But when combined, Man, when you really understand that, man, positionally, I've been made right, you know, in God's sight. I'm in Christ. And then experientially, day by day, I am becoming, I am, you know, cooperating with the work of the Holy Spirit in in, in my life. And he is making me brand new day by day. I'm becoming more and more like God already sees me. Man, when when those things are working together, man, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So, that leads right into this, this final contrast that I want to bring up. Number four, a contrast in energy, in energy. Look at verses 20 and 21, these last couple of verses here. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, what do I mean by a contrast in energy? And we're going to see more of this uh, later on in chapter 7. But for now, I want you to understand that the, the energizing force behind the sin of mankind, ultimately, it's the law. It's the law. God gave the law as a pattern for righteousness, not as a means of righteousness. Okay, let me explain. Think about it this way. Again, the Ten Commandments were not given to make you right with God. Okay, that's what a lot of people think, but, but they weren't. That they were given to show you how wrong you already are. You know, that, that you, can't live, you can't live up to that. You, you're going to disobey. The law is kind of like a thermometer. Remember, we, we referenced this a couple of weeks ago. A thermometer doesn't remove the fever. It just shows, it just measures how sick you already are. Likewise, the law in and of itself is actually incapable of removing our sin. The only thing that it can do is measure our depravity. Just show us how sinful we are. And so in a way, it just creates more and more rebellion and drives us deeper and deeper into depravity. However, a miraculous thing happens at that point. Paul tells us here that in some ways it's like the worse we get, the worse we get, the more we throw ourselves into rebellion and sin and evil. Potentially, the closer we are to coming to finally to an end to ourselves, the closer we are to possibly being, being broken and humbling ourselves where we finally discover how foolish that path is, how hurtful this whole thing has become, and potentially the closer you are to discovering the grace of God, the restoration and the cleansing and the forgiveness that's all found in Jesus Christ. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story of, um, of Chuck Colson. 
Chuck Colson. If, if you're not familiar with his story, you ought to go get a book on him and, and read his story or any of the other 30-plus books this man was written. He is basically most widely known for two things. One, before he met Jesus, and then another thing, after he met Jesus. Now, after he met Christ, after he came face to face with his sin and became a believer, the thing that this man, Chuck Colson, is most widely known for as the founder of the largest, the largest prison ministry, not just in the United States, but in the world. Okay, that's what he's most widely known for now. But before he met Jesus, it was a whole nother story. Officially, he worked in President Richard Nixon's administration as the special counsel to the president. That was his title. Uh, Nixon's chief of staff referred to Colson this way as Nixon's hitman. Hitman. One writer from that day called Colson a hard man the evil genius of an evil administration. Well, Colson, in fact, ended up going to prison for his involvement in Watergate. But before he goes to prison, listen to this, a friend, a friend gives him a copy of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. We talked about that book, remember, over the summer in our series, Summer Reading. And he ends up becoming a Christian. But he goes to prison and in that dark, lonely place, he finds a fellow brother in Christ. The two of them begin meeting together and begin praying for uh, deliverance and salvation for the others in the prison. And they had no idea what God might do. In fact, they almost got to a point of just despairing that anything could ever happen. But as they began to pray, God began to work, and they began to see the Spirit of God moving in miraculous ways in that prison, and, and men were, were humbled and broken, hardened, violent, brutal men who had spent their entire lives in resistance to right and truth and good, who had you know, given themselves over completely to hardness and cynicism and brutality, man, they began to break. They began to humble themselves. They began to find salvation and forgiveness. Now, sometimes, in fact, many times that happens without that level of outward you know, rebellion. In other words, what I'm saying is you don't have to go to prison okay, to find Jesus. However, here's my point today, and maybe you are here today just to hear this. Sometimes we find ourselves in prisons without bars. Some of you are here today, and it is though you are in bondage. You are in prison. You're in a prison of your own making, your own decisions, your own choices. You are in a prison today of discouragement, prison of despair, prisons of hopelessness. Maybe today you find yourself in a prison of addiction, prisons of, of guilt and shame, and over time, what has happened is that that prison has become, you have become hard and, and empty. But when that happens, listen, you are not here today by accident. 
It's not some cosmic accident that you're here because when that happens, when you are finally at the end of your rope, when you're finally to that place when you can say, I have hit rock bottom, I don't know what to, what to do, I don't know where to turn, you can then possibly learn the truth of this passage. That as people sin more and more and more, God's abundant grace is more and more alive. Don't you see the greater the sin, the greater the bondage, the greater the potential miracle of God's grace in your life? Listen, that's why as believers we don't lose hope. We keep praying for that person that we think is, is way beyond hope or prayer because that's not true. The Bible teaches that the greater the sin, the greater God's grace. And maybe, just maybe, at some point, that person or you today Find yourself at the end of your rope. Maybe it's that neighbor you've been praying for. Maybe it's that coworker. Maybe it's your son. Maybe it's your daughter or your spouse that you think is too far gone and they keep going down that downward spiral. And Paul gives us hope here. He says, listen, no matter what Adam created, you know, the, the, the sin of mankind and the downward spiral in Christ, we regain what we lost in Adam, and it's so much greater. Never lose hope. The greater the sin, the greater God's grace. And it's there for you today. It's there for you today. Listen, Jesus came to set the captives free, to break the bondage of our sin. And he brought you here for a reason. You're at the end of your rope. You're at the, the bottom of that pit. Listen, you're not too far gone. We've all been there, every one of us. We're all sinners in need of a Savior, and simply one has been provided. He will crawl down into the pit. He will lift you out. If you will just turn around and take one step of faith, he will make up the distance, and he will run to you. Come home to him today. And listen, don't, don't give up on that son, on that daughter, on that friend. You know, the greater the sin, the greater, the more abundant is God's grace. Bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, God, today, I thank you for your amazing, abundant grace. Father, everything that we lost in Adam, we regain and so much more in Jesus Christ. Thank you for that. Thank you for the miracle of salvation, the miracle of hope, the miracle of grace. Thank you that in Christ, in Christ, we have life, abundant life, here and now and forever. Thank you. And, and you know, if you are here today, and again, you, you think you just tuned us in by accident. You think just, you know, that friend, you know, has been bothering you and, and, and begging you and you finally showed up here today to get him off your back and you know you know listen God loves you he loves you he loves you so much that he paid the price for your sin yep you're a sinner in need of a savior we all are but one has been provided and if you will simply place your faith in him today, just pray something like this. Heavenly Father, I admit it. I am a mess. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And today, God, as much as I know how, as much as I understand, I believe that one has been provided, your son. 
I trust in him today for my salvation. I believe that he rose from the dead and he is alive. And for the rest of my days, God, I just want to follow him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. From Pastor Chris and the family at Coastal Community Church, have a blessed day.